Well, hi, everybody. You're back on the Faculty Factory Podcast. I'm Kim Skorepsky, and I'm looking at my friend and colleague, Dr. Lee Doherty Bittison. Hi, Lee. Hi, Kim. Well, folks, Dr. Doherty Bittison is an associate professor of medicine here at Hopkins in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine. She's also our chief wellness officer. Lee and I, we started working together. I can't even remember how many years ago it was when we were on that joy in medicine task force that was like hundreds. I mean, it was of- before that, Kim. Okay, it, was when we did LD- it was when we were in LDP together. Oh, we did a leadership development program together. Oh my gosh, that's even further, further in our past. That's right. Lee and I were in members of the JHM, the Johns Hopkins Medicine Leadership Development Program, which is a super cool program that brought high-level staff and faculty together and did lots of experiential um, activities. I remember some really great things. So we met there. I remember you referred me to a neighborhood church, which I still love. And I still think about that experience that was leadership taught at a community church. And that gave me such a great feeling of being welcome. That kind of has pervaded my feeling about new faculty orientation. Like I remember going to that church, Lee, and you walked in and the people at the church were lined up on both sides. It was like, paparazzi and they're like yeah yeah you're here you're here and I'm like what in the world is going on but that <laughs> feeling of being of belonging someplace not just fitting in somewhere but belonging has stuck with me so that was the second uh, great experience with Lee and we kind of we just kind of buddies and chum around at all kinds of um, meetings and all kinds of stuff but most notably I remember that joy in medicine the joy of yeah. medicine thing that kind of swept through the country years ago and and you and I were on the committee and and I kind of threw you under the proverbial bus by saying, you know, who'd be great writing this report is Lee. And I remember you looked at me and I'm, <laughs> because you're such a good writer and you had this great mind to synthesize. And I'm seriously, remember, that was like hundreds of people and many, many arms it to was. that that whole committee. And you knocked it out of the park with this report that was so comprehensive, but yet so focused and really had great application. And gosh, right after that, didn't you become our chief wellness officer? So well-deserved and it shows a great pathway of just knocking knocking people's socks off by actually having the ability to see big picture and pattern and then to communicate um, all those things. So I'm done talking. I want to hear all about what Lee Doherty Madison has to share with us today about essentials of well-being. First of all, thank you for that introduction. I feel like I need to come back more often because I, I just, <laughs> just for my, my Kim Skorowski pump up because I feel better already. <laughs> I feel more well already. Well, I, you know, I've I had a couple of opportunities to talk to different groups about her. What are, what are the, the critical issues or the essential issues in, in, in well-being? And as I was asked to talk about that, there were Several things that came to mind. I mean, the first thing that I always want to remind people is that wellness or well-being, our well-being in the workplace, in our professional lives, is foundational to everything else we do. Sometimes people think about it as an add-on. Like, once I get my work done, I will think about my well-being. Once I get my work done, I'll think about maybe building community. Or once I get my work done, I'll think about maybe adding in some mindfulness meditation or some other aspect that people sort of traditionally think of as being well being related. But I, I think it's really important for us to actually change our mindset around that and understand that being well at work in the many diverse ways we can define that 
is really foundational to accomplishing all the things that we want to accomplish, that we're most productive, we're most engaged, we're most creative when we have a balanced perspective on our work and our life and a balanced view of pursuing our values that isn't solely about what we can cross off the list or what we could accomplish or all of those things. Those things are important. I'm not setting those aside. But when we put them first, we have this other big gap in terms of a meaningful life that ends up actually backfiring on us, right? Because we are pushed so hard, we've pushed too hard and end up being less engaged and less productive than we could be. So with that in mind, I think there are a couple of three that I like to think about attributes of our sort of mindset as we pursue well-being that are really, really important. And, and Kim, feel free to jump in and ask me questions as I, as I walk through this. But And the first is self-awareness. I have told a story before about a scheduling situation in my own clinical life where there were differences of opinion about how long one should be on service. The traditional thought was it's really best for you to do four weeks continuous on service nonstop because you build these continuous relationships, et cetera. And then other folks who were in academia had said, we need to go hard for a period of time and then take a break. And it was a you know, sort of shorter period. And and I just remember conversations with the one, with an, an individual who was very pro four weeks and had really good arguments for it. But what I realized was this person who would do that and be on service four weeks at a time was really pretty miserable and grumpy by the end of four weeks and not at all in tune to the fact that they were that way. I think our ability to notice in ourselves what's happening for us in our ways of working and scheduling our lives is, is really critical to making steps forward um, in terms of well-being. I think I like said, he did not realize that he was pretty grumpy and miserable. And that self-awareness is so important. So I am, I'm envisioning some per people or maybe me when I don't, I'm not aware where I'm getting to that kind of hangry, I need a Snickers bar, getting kind of <laughs> impatient. But you know what, Lee? Honestly, more times than not, I feel like I am aware of it. And then kind of almost see myself sliding into that. Like, I can't help it. I can't help it. Here I go. Here I go. Steer into the curve. Steer steer into the spin or whatever that thing is when the, the car's spinning out. You know, don't slam on the brakes. It's like, I can't stop myself. It's coming out of my face. I, I appreciate the, someone who's not aware. And to some to some degree, I kind of envy people who can just go through life. Tra-la-la, no self-awareness. Well, how, how would you advise or what do you know about people like me, who maybe, or what is it about that I'm aware? Like, oh, here it's happening, it's happening. I'm about to lose it. I feel it coming up. I feel it. How do I, like, stop the spin out or stop the the slide? How do you have any techniques or what the literature is saying about how I can maybe snap myself out of being very aware but not stopping? Is you don't you know what I'm trying to say? But do you get me? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think part of the the self-awareness journey is actually answering the question about why. So if I see I'm going here and I can't stop. Uh -huh. And sort of some piece of that question of why can't I stop? 
what is the, you know, what's happening for me that I feel like, you know, I've actually had some recent conversations with about this myself. Like I see myself heading for the cliff. I'm about to roll off. And view is that I have to go hard or go home. And so stopping is inconsistent with this view of go hard or go home. Mm-hmm. And so it really takes practice to uh-huh. say, I see myself, okay, I'm aware that I'm going there. I'm aware that the reason I'm having a hard time stopping is because I have this view that I have to produce, 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 and I got to keep going. I'm going to practice a pause, a mindful pause. I'm going to practice a step aside. I'm going to practice reframing this for myself. It might be with journaling. It might be in a conversation with a colleague. It might be in a walk with Sunny, but I'm going to, you know, I'm going to reframe this for myself. And I think this idea that we're going to get the perfect balance in that without any practice. I'd love that. But I kid myself that I should be able to do that without any practice, but it takes practice. You're right. And I love you're using kind of this coaching mindset because, you know, I know you're doing coaching as well. And I recently got the coaching certification and you're so right is asking the curious questions of ourselves. Why do I think I can't stop? Is it true that I can't stop? Am I literally on an ice you know, icy hill sliding down and I can't stop or can I? And then you're forcing me to think if you were coaching me, which you just were, I'd be like, well, of course (laughs) I can stop. But why don't I want to stop? Because I want to be right. You know, I want to make sure that person knows the error of their ways that for crying out loud. I mean, so like, what does that gain me? All right. So if you're going to win that conversation, yeah, you won, but maybe did you lose some leadership credibility because now you have to have your way every time and you always have to be right. So now, I mean, you've just, I'm like, we know the principles of coaching. I'm talking my way through understanding why do I think I can't stop? And that awareness of reminding me that it's not just enough to watch a hundred YouTubes, to read 50 books, to go through lots of articles and to talk to tons and tons of people. You actually have to practice the behavior. You know, that's the next stage of knowing, you know, the initial outcomes are knowing um, attitudes or skills, changes in knowledge, attitudes or skills. So I think as academics, we all cram a lot of knowledge, but that what we forget is the mid-level outcome is changes in behavior. Those knowledge, attitudes, and skills are supposed to move to the next thing of, so what are you going to do about it? And it's so easy for me to slip into my old habits of, like you said, go hard. I don't have time for this pausing and thinking and being mindful of transformational relationships, but it's just cutting your own nose off to spite your face in the goal of being efficient. Like you shared that great article by Tate Chanafelt at the, our junior faculty leadership series last week, a couple weeks ago, wellness centered leadership, equipping healthcare leaders to cultivate physician well-being and professional fulfillment. You're just making me think that if you want to, that's a great folks. That's a great table. You got to have a great table in there. It's academic medicine 2021, but it's just a, a constant reminder that we're so busy, but be, so we think that if we go fast and go hard, we'll get things done as you said, the checklist, but then it's at the, what's the expense? What is the cost? Yeah. And yeah. the cost is this cost is this vicious cycle of fractured wellness. So. I I love what you did. Pause, pause, pause. Mindfulness, reframing, practicing. Yes. Thank you. You just coached me through that. Wow. 
asking why we do things. <laughs> you know, Kim, there's there's one other thing that your your comments are um, reminding me of, and that is that it's very easy to say, you know, just we just need to slow down. Just slow down. You'll be more well if you slow down. That actually does not resonate with many academicians. And I've learned over time that actually it's a better analogy to think about like a hit workout. You can go hard as long as you know that it's a time-limited thing. We've all worked 60-hour weeks. I am not advocating that we make that a habit, but it happens sometimes. It's okay as long as you understand that that can't be the pattern for a hit workout. You can't do the high intensity indefinitely. You do it for a period of time and then you rest, period of time and then you rest, period of time and you rest. And it's the same way with our work. Like I think, you know, this it, it's hard for people to say, well, why you keep telling me to slow down and I got stuff to do. It's just about being sure that the intensity of our life effort isn't at 90 or 95 percent all the time. It's being, getting more comfortable with this ebb and flow, right? That I can, I'm going to go hard and then I'm going to. And then I'm going to slow down and then I'm going to go hard again. And then I'm going to slow down. You're so brilliant. I love that you just said that because that to me has been the crux of a lot of my challenges that telling people like us in this industry to slow down is laughable. You know, that, that a lot of faculty say, slow down how and just not do stuff. And that's why I guess I was wrong. And you've really Open my eyes to when I would so when our mentor, our, our mutual friend Cindy Rand would always say pause. And that is kind of like saying to a sprinter, pause. And they're like, what? What? <laughs> Just Arr! screech to a stop and telling a sprinter to stop and then keep going. It's almost antithetical to how we are. But I like the way you framed this for me that it's not, it need not be a complete halt where you have to stop for an hour or two hours, it could, it's just like maybe a concept of building in. So like reversing hit the high intensity interval program training, reversing that interesting. If if you flip it and go, how about if you build in the pauses just to think, to organize, to breathe and then go hard rather than the going hard and then breaking it's the pausing and then going hard. So the idea of building that in, to recalibrate, re-energize, refocus. So I like the way you're making me think about the pause as not just a yanking on the leash and now I got to sit and still and zen out and try to tell my mind to calm down when I was just in the middle of a sprint. Thank you very much. The other thing is if you've scheduled a pause, you know it's there as opposed to, oh, how about now? You're going hard and then it's just really, you know, but if I know... In X period of time, I'm going to slow down and then and then I'll pick back up after a period of time versus all of a sudden you've got whiplash because somebody just told me to stop. Self-awareness. So love it. What else? The second big thing on my list, which is sometimes easier said than done, but is humility. I'll tell you a little bit of a story actually about interviewing for med school and anybody who interviewed at the Mayo Clinic, am I allowed to drop names here? will know this. I had a phone interview and this interview was going, and this is, you know, of course, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, getting old. The phone interview where going along, everything's fine. And then the question is, how important is humility in medicine? 
And I'm like, oh, very, very important. This is really, really nice. We waxed very eloquent on this. The very next question was, well, on a scale of one to 10, how humble are you? I think I said a six. Like I wanted to be on the humbler side, but I didn't want to appear cocky about my humility. I remember that. That's probably the only med school interview question I remember from all the places I interviewed or applied. Why raise humility here? And I think the reason is because it's a sort of almost in some ways a, a, an extension of self-awareness. But but what I realize in my daily work is that I just don't know what's happening for the people around me. And, I, you know, I, well, last time I was talking about this, I was uh, in, in a meeting with a colleague who works in the ED. And everyone knows the historical tension between, you know, medicine departments and, and emergency departments. And it's very easy being someone admitting a patient to medicine to complain about what didn't get done or didn't happen or didn't or what the ED missed or why they didn't do this or why they didn't do that and when we're admitting that patient. What we're missing there is the context for what's happening in the ED. So often, not always, but it's not rare that there are multiple traumas happening at the same time that people are evaluating your MI. These days, it's not rare for there to be an issue with a violent patient at the same time your patient with pneumonia is getting evaluated in the ED. There are lots of reasons why something doesn't get done. And what I lose by just making assumptions about people and why they're, you know, why things happened or didn't happen. And there are many other examples of this. I called the ex-consult eight hours ago. Why haven't I seen them? I, I did the this, I did the that, mm-hmm. whatever. And I haven't gotten the response I wanted. Please don't hear me saying that I can do this consistently. It's, it is also a discipline and a practice to consider what might be going on that's happened, that, that's causing this. But the value gained by doing that is significant insofar that it gives us empathy, which is an important part about building relationships and helps us get curious about what other people's experience are like. And I think that is really, really important. You're so right. I mean, I'm thinking back to that article where it says, you know, you care about people as always first. And many of us in our institutions, we know that it's the people pillar is always number one. You have to take care of our people, our people, our people. And and yes, relationships, everything to me comes down to relationships, right? I appreciate this being empathetic and curious. And I'm reminded of a course I took with this great professor, and I can never remember his name at Cary Business School, where he's talked about, he always said, it was about strategic leadership. And he said, um, the humility of realizing I am not the keeper of all truth. And that was stuck with me because I always tend to think that, I guess I don't that I understand what's going on. And so I like load all my barrels and I go in and I got my, I've practiced my, you know, pitch and my story and the strengths and the weaknesses and the opportunities and the threats. And I'm ready to go in and like, I'm going to be, use my assertiveness, my communication. And then I overhear the person who I've got the guns ablaze and aimed at saying, oh my gosh, you won't believe it. The school lost power. I'm taking my daughter's working. My son's a firefighter. I had to go pick her up and the phones weren't working. And then I had to get there, but then I fell down the stairs and I hear her telling the story and I'm going, oh, this is life happening that I 
was not aware. I was just annoyed at the lack yeah. of responsiveness or the not having attention to detail. And it was a humbling experience for me to go, really, Kim, you're walking into this scenario like with your boxing gloves on already. All right, I'm finally, I'm had it. And then I'm not even curious about what, what happened. And then I overhear the story. Thank goodness. That made me go, okay, all right, let's, let's calm down here. Um, nobody died because of this, <laughs> but it's hard. It's hard. It's hard because when you are in this area in this academic medicine or probably any industry where you're professional, like you said earlier, you are hard driving. We want to get things done. We want to do a good job. We want to be productive. We got a million things to do. We don't have time. We don't have time to pause and stop and think and care about people. And then I realized, what? We don't have time to care about people? Are you kidding me? What's the whole point of being here? Just doing things? Because that's right. We're a human doings. We're human doings. We're not human beings after all. We're human doings. And that's yeah. always a big slap in the face to me to go, to what end? To what end am I trying to be this master human doing? Yeah. I know myself so much. What's interesting is I think this, you know, to your point about the caring about people always and that that component of well-being centered leadership is that, you know, as I, I've been thinking about this, that self-awareness mm -hmm. and that humility sort of are very much connected to sort of this third construct that I think is incredibly important in this space. And that is community, that there you could try to build community without self-awareness and humility, but it might be more challenging, right? But the community piece is such an important one when things aren't going as they are meant to. And when they are going as they're meant to. Part of that, the feeling of accomplishment is that sense of a shared experience. And I think when we miss that shared experience, we, we lose a lot. You know, I think it's, it's one of the conundra of our remote work during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I'm incredibly interested in is what we'll find over time about remote work. Mm -hmm. So in, in the immediate, we really like it because it's convenient, right? I'm remote today. You're remote today. On the other hand, I'm not running into people on my way to the bathroom or my way to get a snack I'm not noticing that somebody on my team looks a little sad today and, and mm. getting curious about that and building that connection. And so it will be really interesting to see on balance whether the, you know, sort of autonomy and flexibility component, our well-being ends up sort of tipping the scales in terms of remote work or whether the community that we sometimes miss, mm -hmm. often miss, I think, in being remote um, actually tips the scale in the opposite direction. You're so right, Lee. I think I'm thinking a lot about that as many of us are for the exact points you mentioned. The efficiency of Zooming and the trade-off is that three-dimensional communication and heart-to-heart, -heart, person to person relationship building. It's just not the same. I, I wanted to get your opinion on this. So I had two two thoughts is one, gosh, if you want to be a leader and you don't really care about community or people or relationships, good luck with that. Because who are you leading? Unless you're leading a bunch of robots 
<laughs> Maybe you are soon, and someday we will be leading all these chat GPT, chat 4.0, whatever these things are. Maybe That's a bunch right. of That's right. those little minions, then fine. But if you want to be a leader, you're leading human doings, human <laughs> beings. You're le- you're leading humans, so you have to be committed to relationships. But you know, because of what you just said earlier, I, I wanted to ask you this. I was been thinking the past couple of days, knowing the, uh, my conversation with you was coming up because. I mean, do we even have teams per se? I mean, I know that there are faculty out there who really don't have teams per se. So I'm thinking of faculty members in academic medicine who maybe are not privileged to be in a clinic with a team of mocks and scrub nurses and anesthesiologists and fellow surgeons and trainees and and schedulers and transporters like that team team. There are some people who are in a lab alone or in their office alone who don't even have administrative support or, you know, one sixteenth of administrator. And so there's really no team per se. How do we own or think about or practice that discipline of well-being when we are in isolation? Is that a topic in this, in this area? I mean, have you heard anything about that or have you thought about that? You know, I think this is what jumps to mind when you ask that question is this is where the work of groups like your office are so important, you know, Mm. because you're creating those sort of writing accountability groups or leadership development offerings or things like that, that draw groups of people that might otherwise be somewhat isolated together in a space to build connection and a relationship. Mm-hmm. And so I th- think the point you're making is that we sometimes have to get a bit creative about where our community comes from. I think this is true that some communities are more, require more effort to build, mm-hmm. but no one is in a position where there's, or it is it is the rare individual who's in a position who can't, has no opportunity to build community. Sometimes it takes more effort for some folks than others just because of the nature of their work. Right. And I think, you know, it's our job, my team's job, your team's job to think about how we lower the activation energy for those folks Ooh. to get connected. Oh, I love that. Love uh, the activation energy. And I love how you've endorsed our offices of faculty development who, yes, like my professional career mantra is to build community. I love it. And I think it, it is so important. And it's so much, you know, in some ways it's that that interdepartmental or interprofessional community is actually, you know, even one step richer than the communities we naturally fall into sometimes. Such a great reminder, Lee. So thank you for reminding me about looking for opportunities within our divisions, our departments, our schools, and then externally between other universities, our professional societies, our our hobbies, our ne- our neighborhoods, our our places of worship, our gyms that looking for built community opportunities just to join, to get out of the silo. It does take a little bit of curiosity and I guess proactivity, but there are opportunities. And it just also reminds me how important, like you said, people like us who have resources and programs to that we need to be looking for the people who are maybe alone and isolated and make sure that we are inviting them 
and that they know that then they not only fit in this, but that they belong here. They yeah, belong here. Point. And we're looking for you. We're looking for you. We need you. And so that's a beautiful message. Thank you, Lee. This has well, been folks, so fun, Kim. <laughs> oh, well, this is Lee, Lee Doherty Bittison here at Hopkins, our chief wellness officer, a wonderful human being, lovely colleague and friend. Thank you, Lee, for being on the Faculty Factory Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.